Have a seat. Well, good morning, everyone. Actually, it turns out it's going to be a great morning. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture in Philippians uh, chapter 2. If you want to go there, if you brought a Bible, you can do that. When we began our series, we're doing a four-week series on lies we believe, and we started that four weeks ago. And if you remember, uh, I interviewed Dr. Thurman, and we talked about the various lies that we might believe and how to you know, counter that. And so somewhere in that interview, I said, well, what is the truth that we ought to believe? What, like, how do we calibrate our minds? How should we think? And he went to this passage in Philippians chapter 2. He went into the seven sentences that have been changing people's lives for 2,000 years. These seven sentences define the nature of God, the identity of Jesus Christ, and they define, they define our nature as well. That's why we are to think like Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, verse 5 says, Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Another translation, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. And what we're going to look at is a song. A song, so it, it's written so that we could remember it, so that we could sing it. And it is about the nature of God, but it is a scandal. This song, this hymn, is a scandal about this nature of God. This passage we're going to look at is certainly one of the high-altitude passages of the entire Bible. Top three, absolutely. And for, for a lot of reasons, and that is it talks about the nature of God, the attributes of God, in ways that other passages are not as clear or succinct. But this passage, it brings us a vision of God that's... Beyond our imaginations, honestly, beyond we could imagine. And I'm going to tell you this attribute of God. When you study theology, it's called systematic theology. And under that, about God itself, himself, it's called theology proper. And under theology proper, it's the subcategory called attributes of God. This is the attribute of God I want us to look at today that's found in this passage. It is humility. And since it is God, it is Yahweh is omni-humble, all humble. Just like he's omnipresent, he is always present. He's omnipotent, omnipowerful. He's all-powerful. He is omni-humble. And when I realized studying that this week, I thought, you know what, I'm going to go to some of my old textbooks. And I, I love reading systematic theology, and I went to them to see if there's humility in there. This is the summary of the summary by Thomas Aquinas. In his attributes of God, nature of God, it's not found in that. And then my favorite, Millard Erickson, Christian theology under systematic theology, under theology proper, under attributes, it's not there either. It's missing. It's lacking. I think I'll write Mr. Er Dr. Erickson. I'm a big fan of his. Here's Grudem's, Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. He's still alive. He's going to get a letter from me too. My first uh, systematic theology book was by Thiessen. Like him a lot because it's one of the smaller books that I own in this. <clears throat> but he doesn't have this. And then this book I really liked a lot, Moody Handbook of Theology, because he summarized. Here's three pages of summary for the, of systematic theology, theology proper, attributes of God for the last 700 years. Not one of these men included the attribute of humility and certainly not omni-humble. So, you're lucky to be here today, <clears throat> because I'm apparently the only one who think it ought to be in there. No, he is humble. He is, his, the nature of God is humble, and I'm expecting a Christmas card from one of, or at least two of these guys, and maybe, you know, they're still alive. They can update their versions and put a little something-something for me. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for that input. 
the attribute of God. God is humble. Yahweh is omni-humble. And I think it's somewhat scandalous. There might be a reason it's not in these books because humility is not a word or, or humble is not a word that's, you know, it, it's a powerful word. It means modest. It means gentle. It means to be self-forgetful. And outside the Bible itself, particularly in the times when Jesus was teaching, the idea of humility was a derogatory term. It, in, in, just think of the culture of Greece and then later Rome, which is certainly the mindset, the worldview, the way they think upon these things. That if you, if you want to you know, cause a society, you want to build a society, you need to build that society on power. And if you want to maintain order in that society, you need to do that through fear. So words like, you know, modesty or gentleness, those words, those are used for the people that we defeat. Humility was an attribute of a slave. You can have that word, but it is not for those that are in power. And so this idea of, of, of humility is brought into the New Testament. It's used 270 times, and almost all of those usage, uses of this word, humble or humility, is, as adjectives, they are all mostly positive. Yahweh is humble. He is omni-humble. In the Bible, humility is not just important. It is the means of all relationships. It is the way we are able to enjoy each other truly. It is, it, it is when a, a corporate president, in all of her power, wearing a dress, would get on the floor to play with a little baby. It's a huge linebacker that goes on bended knees so he can look into the eyes of an elderly woman so as to give her dignity, so he wouldn't speak down and she wouldn't have to look up. Humility is the love language of God, and humility is the language of every healthy soul. Humility is self-forgetfulness. It is an attribute of God. It is the very nature of God. And this passage tells us to think like Christ thinks. So yeah, think on this. Think like this. This is, how, this is how you're supposed to think. This is the truth that we're to believe. The lies we believe, great book. This is the truth we're to believe, this. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Now we're going to look at this hymn to better understand what it's telling us to think like. In chapter 2, Philippians 5 through 11, it is the center of, of truth of Christianity. This is where it is, right? And it is, it is written in a hymn in a way so that we could memorize it, like I said. And it is so dense with content, I'm going to have to break up kind of the way I am able to explain this. The first part of our learning time together, I will tell you basically what it says. And then I'll tell you what it means. I'm going to tell you some words that are strategically chosen that are so full of meaning and, and, and how that applies to our understanding of the passage. And then I'm going to look at how it can not just make us feel existentially, but how it can literally change our lives if we are able to apply that. Okay? What it says and then what it means. Let's look at what it says. It, it's a hymn written in a way where it has three stanzas, and the three stanzas have chronological order, but even also kind of a logical order of progression. The first stanza is going to talk about Jesus Christ before Bethlehem, before he comes and takes on flesh. 
The middle section is going to talk about his life on earth, and the last section will be talking about his post-resurrection glorification. That's the outline. I don't want you to lose this in the, when we start talking about what it says. We'll be, using, we'll be looking at detailed words and, and definitions and vocabulary, but don't lose this. This is why we're doing it. This is how we should think. This is the mindset of Jesus Christ. This is how God thinks. This is the nature of God, this passage that we're looking at. First stanza, before Bethlehem, before Jesus takes on flesh, verses 5 and 6. Have the same mindset that is in Christ Jesus who, being in the very nature or the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped or exploited or used to his advantage. Let's look at the word there, form or nature, depending on your translation. I think if, if you have a philosophy background, you, you will under, better understand this. The word in philosophy would be essence. The word morphe there means essence. And essence, a good illustration of what essence means would be to go to, let's say, the periodic table where those are elements. Gold would make us a good example because it's not just gold on the outside, the color, but I mean, you know, the element of gold. And if I had a gold bar here, I was, this is the definition of gold. Every aspect of this is gold, inside and outside. As a matter of fact, if I hit it with a hammer and a shard were to peel off of that and I picked it up, I'd say, that's gold. It's not lost anything by being separate from the whole. If I had a microscope that was strong enough, we could go to the atomic level of gold and it would be, it would be gold because the essence is gold. It's completely gold. It's nothing else but gold. The author here, Paul, says, in the very form of God, in the essence of God, Jesus is God. He, he, he has the honor of God. He rules all heaven and earth from his throne before he takes skin. Right? He, he uh, was worshiped like God is worshiped by angels, and the angels obey every, his every command. He is involved in creation. It was Jesus that just threw all the galaxies out for his good pleasure, for the beauty and the glory that is received in that experience. It says in Colossians chapter 1 about his godness, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. It is for in him all things uh, in heaven and on earth were created, things, invi things visible and invisible. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things and in him all things are held together, hold together. He's, he's, his essence is God. Have this mindset, have this mindset that Jesus Christ has about this divinity. It says in verse 6, Jesus Christ didn't consider equality with God as something to be grasped or used or to be used to his advantage. Grasp, his deity, held on to, you know, gripped exploited. He could use it any way he wants. The father comes to him and says, will you consider, will you consider releasing that? And the son says, I will. I will do this to obey what your will is. The son obeys the father. And in that obedience, he says, do not consider that those attributes as something to be held on to. So, the stanza continues to the next section. The next stanza talks about his earthly life, right? And so so rather, rather than grasp it, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature, 
form of a servant being made in human likeness. Paul is very strategic here. The exact same word, morphe, for use for the essence of God is now in the, the essence of man. He's used that same word for purpose, and that is he, Jesus, is fully man. He is fully God, and he is fully man. And he did not lay aside his deity to become man. He kept both at the same time. It would be impossible to leave that deity behind. So he is, he is all-knowing Jesus Christ, but he's humbled himself and didn't, take, didn't, didn't use the attribute of being all-knowing as, as being divine. And he chose to learn to use a spoon <laughs> or, and how to speak his first word. Jesus is all-powerful, but he did not grasp that all-powerful. And in his temptation, 40, year, 40 days in the desert, right, he's, he's become, he's, he's eating, his stomach is eating itself, right? He's that level of starvation. And his temptation in that moment, turn this rock into bread. Can you do that? He can do that, but he would have to grasp that divine nature. And so that's why it was a temptation. He can't use it to his advantage. He, is, he's, he has all authority over all of creation. The angels are at his beck and call. That's his army. And the last temptation of Christ is when he's hanging on the cross and people are screaming and mocking him. You've saved others, now save yourself. And the angels are leaning forward. Say the word. You have all the authority. And he whispers, stand down. Because that's his expression of obedience. That's what it means to be God, man. And some of you, are, I'm sure, are thinking, you know, he did plenty of miracles, right? He fed 5,000, he fed 3,000, he walked on water, he raised people from the dead. Absolutely, he did. It wasn't his divine nature doing that. It says in Acts chapter 10 that the Father gave him resources, the power of the Spirit in his life. He was fulfilling the, the Father's will in those activities, and it was the Spirit's power that did that. Jesus walked on water, water with the same power that Peter walked on water. It was the Spirit of God that did that. Jesus was not using ever his divine nature for his own gain. He emptied himself. He emptied himself of, of, and became you know, human, right? He humbled himself to become like man. And when he came like man, he didn't come into a, an experience of being part of some some birthed into a royal family, right, of a, of a great nation. He could have been born into the kingship of Rome, but that's not what he did. He humbled himself and became man to a very poor couple as part of a conquered nation to a town who, you know, their version of Keep Austin Weird was nothing good comes from Nazareth of all hometowns. And there's a purpose for that. It's his dissension that he did not grasp that. He let that go. The dissension continues in his life, but also in his death. It says, rather, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature or form, the essence of a servant, becoming in human likeness, being found in the appearance of man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, death even on a cross, death, death even on a cross. His obedience to the Father led him to a dishonorable death, a disgraceful death. We know what graceful means. This is the opposite of that. He goes all the way down, death, 
death even on a cross. There were so many other ways to die. And God allows the son to choose to allow this experience to happen on him. The sharpest imaginable contrast in human imagination is this. This phrase, Yahweh, God, on a cross. God on a cross. And that is the heart of Christian theology. The humility of God is the heart of Christian theology. When we talk about Yahweh on a cross, we, we, have, to, we have to get outside of our culture. We have, we have crosses for just for adornment, right? We have necklaces and bracelets, and we have it on our ring fingers, right? We, we put them on buildings. Our tombstones are in the shape of a cross. Not back then. That's not, no one marked their grave with a cross back then. If you had an uncle and a brother or anyone that died of that crucifixion, it's Ill, Romans, it was illegal to crucify someone if you were Roman. That's how heinous it was and disgraceful. You had a relative that died in that manner. You didn't talk about that relative ever again. The scandal of God's nature is his humility, that he would go to this extent to show that, have this mindset, the mindset that is in Christ Jesus. Next stanza, next stage, his glory. Look what it says. It continues. The story continues. The song keeps playing. Therefore, because of that, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that was above every name, and that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, should bow, and in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, and even Jesus to the glory of God the Father. Be in this mind. Have this mind of Christ that he suffered this most humiliating death, a criminal's death. He's buried in a borrowed grave. He's mostly ignored by people. The people that did, quote, follow him, abandoned him. And in that shame, in this great loss, the father exalts him above all things, that at his name, every knee will bow and every tongue would confess Think like Jesus thinks. This is the ultimate expression of, of judo, you know, where he takes this great shame and uses it, and it becomes great glory. The crown of thorns that was hammered onto the forehead of Jesus, he rules everything with that crown. That's his showpiece now. It is, it is his glory of obedience. The cross, it serves as his scepter. And when it bangs, all of creation rattles. Think like Jesus thinks. That's what the passage says. Wow. Here's what it means. Here's what it means. Here's how it changes the way you think. Here's how it melts your, your heart. Here's how it gives courage to your will. This is the difference that it makes. This powerful scandal, the big, the, the glory that happens at the end, it's all contingent on one thing. It hinges, it pivots, it all changes based on a decision. Everything is hanging in a balance on this decision. In heaven, in glory, right? 
in the comfort and the splendor of, and safety of living in the communion with the Father and the Spirit, he did not regard his deity as something to be grasped, to be held onto. That's where the decision is. The passage, this passage we're looking at, it is the center of Christian theology. This decision is the heart of this truth. Will you consider this? Will you consider leaving that? Let your mind have the mind of Jesus Christ. Not to use whatever we have that it might be used to our advantage, our exploitation, our, I don't know, seizing upon. I have my rights. Do you know who I am? I don't deserve this. Those phrases never happened in the conversation with the father. The father says to the son, you are the second person in this trinity, and I have something for you to do. But you must consider this. You can choose not to. You can say, I have a right, but he doesn't. Because the nature of God is humility. Yahweh is omni-humble. And so he never says, I have rights. He is self-forgetful. And when you're self-forgetful, you look out and you see what is available. And he must have looked out. Why would he do such a thing? Well, one reason would be, you know, that he saw the love. He saw us. Possibly he saw us. There's passages in the Bible that would lead us to believe that when the father gave the son this, this offering that he could have rejected, he saw that this was the only way that any human being after the fall of Adam and Eve could ever have intimacy with God in this life and in the next. It's the only way it could work. If he didn't do this, we are all damned. We're all condemned by our own actions and attitudes. But it's clear that the father, you could say it this way, for God so loved the world, that the father so loved the world, or the Trinity so loved the world, that he asked his only begotten son, would you consider not grasping your deity so that whoever would believe in him in his death and his resurrection would not perish but have eternal life because the son obeyed? Because of kind of the logic of this passage, it, it brings us to this undeniable conclusion that to have salvation you must believe in grace alone, the gift of what Jesus did for us on the cross, what Christ did for you on the cross. You must believe in Christ alone and in that gift alone. Only Jesus and only in this gift. That's where our faith is. You can't, you can't say, I'm going to believe in good works so I get a gift. It's not a gift anymore. You can't say, I'm going to take this gift and do good works so that I get the gift. It's not a gift anymore. This is, the father asked the son because it was the only way to make this work. If righteousness can be had by good works, then Christ died needlessly. Right? Yeah. And so Christ had to die and he chose to do it. If you come to the father and you say, look at all that I've done. That's, that's proud speak. And God doesn't speak proud speak. 
His, tongue lang- his, his, his heart language, his native tongue is humility. And when you say, look what I've done, you don't, <laughs> you don't, know, you don't know God. And you don't know you. And you don't know the cross. Because this is the cross. That, that if we could get to heaven any other way, then Christ died needlessly. That's why he came. But love is not mentioned in this passage. Love was a motive for sure. In his self-forgetfulness, the Trinity looked out and saw us. There was love. This passage makes no mention of love. This passage talks about the nature of God. It is the nature of God to humbly serve. When Jesus Christ is negotiating, when he's considering whether he should not count his divinity as something to be grasped or held on to, he's considering it. Is, is it within the capacity of Yahweh to humbly serve? And the answer is yes, because it is the very nature or attribute of God to be humble, to be omni-humble. It's not as though he left deity behind so that he could be humble. God is humble and brought that with him. His essence is the same. It is like Yahweh, it is like his essence to be self-forgetful and to look out and say, this is how it must be. And so he became powerless. He became human. He suffered a criminal's death. That was all consistent with the nature of God. If it wasn't, it couldn't happen. And so God is showing himself to be a God of humility. And you can see why this would be somewhat scandalous. Are, are there any other gods, comparatively speaking, that have this attribute, this asset, this part of their essence? Yahweh God shows himself in his nature to be humble and a humble servant by being born in a borrowed cave where he spends his first night in a cattle food trough. God shows his attribute of humility by taking up a towel and washing feet. God shows his humiliation on the cross. God is humble. Set your mind on things like Christ. Think like Christ thinks. This is like the path of the divine nature of God, to be glorified, to be humbled, to be glorified. That's our path. You, that, because we are in his nature. We are made in the image of God. What's the image of God? He's omni-humble. We were made to be humble. The original blueprint, it was humble. And so we got to find this, this same path. That's my point. It's like you, you remember, they write this in a hymn, in a song, in a medley, in like, uh, it, it's synergistic, right? It, symmetrical, so that we would just have this rattling around in our heads all the time. If you, the way up is to go down. The way to get wealthy is, is to give extravagantly. The, the way to be happy is to think about other people, to be self-forgetful. You cannot be happy holding a mirror. It can't happen. You're violating the nature of God, and we're made in his image. It is in the image of God that we're that were made. Pride is the hammer that pulverizes in the gravel all potential of great relationships. Relationships in marriage, relationships in parenting, and relationships at work. 
I mean, every once in a while, you'll see a book come out. About every three years, a book will come out that's revolutionizing, you know, the workplace environment. And it usually, if it has longstanding applications and it actually does work, it's because someone has found out that we are, we serve better than rule. They've, they've tapped into this. When I uh, celebrated our 34th anniversary this week, because we've been married that long, let me, let me tell you guys, to me young, thank you. I'll give you some uh, little helpful stuff, you young people. There's young marriage. This is what it looks like when you're married 35 years, 34 years. So uh, we went to Perry's Steakhouse on Friday. It wasn't our anniversary, but they have $16 like rib, or uh, pork ribs there. And so you go the day that the sale is going when you get married this long. It's like any day this week, month, or year. So we did that. And then afterwards, we went to Walgreens because when you're our age, you're always going by Walgreens. <laughs> It's what you do. And so while Melinda was kind of roaming around Walgreens looking for a sale somewhere, I was uh, talking to the pharmacist, and I, and I had some stuff. And, and I was like, hurry, hurry, hurry. The guy couldn't count any slower. And uh, because I'd gotten a card for our anniversary at Walgreens, and I was trying to get out of there without getting caught. I had st- I've stolen cards before because I went into a store with her and then stole it and then came back later and paid for it. But this guy could not count to 12. And so because of that, Melinda comes over and she sees the card and is like, oh, no. And she pulls the card out. She goes, I didn't get you a card either. <laughs> is that awesome? And then, and then she looks at the card. And she goes, that's a really bad card. And I said, it's a better card than you didn't get me. I said, I didn't have a chance to read the card. It had a yellow envelope, and that's your favorite color, and I had to get in and out of here so fast. So we put the card back, and that was that. And then we went home, and we watched our, our, our wedding video. We haven't seen that in maybe 10 or 15 years. And you probably don't know this, but we were the first wedding ever videotaped by a drunk orangutan. <laughs> and we just kept, I was like, how can you mess up? So many different ways. I'm, like it's a simple thing. Just like keep the camera steady. Anyway, after we did that, uh, I, I got a little lost. Hold on. Um, so, well, anyway, uh, if, you, if, you're, if you're married long enough and your expectations are lowered low enough, then everything's, everything's good. That's, that's, that's the key to the happy marriage. There's a lot of truth in that. So we were talking, we just got reminiscing about the old days and we were wondering, like, why did we argue so much in those first five years? And just, we were always like, uh, we were always going after each other and the next five, nah, they were a little bit better, but they weren't great. And we realized it was because of this. It was because, you know, whenever we'd have discussions, arguments, we never listened to understand. We listened to respond because we wanted to win the argument, right? You know Why? Because I have my rights. Do you know who I am? And we just don't, we just don't do that anymore. We've, been, like, we just, we've taken on the mind of Christ. She said, you know, we, why don't, I mean, I don't even know why I, I don't argue anymore. And I said, honey, that's because you know you're wrong now. And, <laughs> and that's how you end up spending the night on the couch on your 34th wedding anniversary. We, I was so close to making it a great date and it didn't work out. We hold on to pettiness. It ruins a relationship. It ruins a marriage. Do you know who I I have my rights. I have my rights. You have a right to be miserable in all of your pride. 
Think, think like Christ, the mind of Christ, though in the essence of God, as one of the parts of the Trinity, he did not regard it as something to be grasped. I have my rights has never been spoken by God the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit. They are all three so self-forgetful that when Jesus comes, he says, you should meet the Spirit. And when the Spirit comes, he says, I'm going to tell you about the Father. When the Father comes, says, he says, I want to send you my Son. And even at the climax of this, that every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. They are all turned out all the time. To be fully God is to be self-forgetful and humble. To be fully man is to be self-forgetful and humble. It is the nature of Yahweh. It is the nature of man. And when we think like Jesus, set your minds on things like Jesus thinks. You think, well, you know, if Jesus can wash feet, then I can fill in the blank. If Jesus can wash a traitor's feet, maybe you could not be so petty. If Jesus could leave the glory and the riches of heaven, maybe, maybe we could live with, with, with gratefully within our means and be able to give generously. If, uh, if Jesus could regularly dine with outcasts, you think maybe a senior could take a freshman to lunch? Sure. If Jesus in his divine nature did not grasp that divine nature, but could carry a cross to Golgotha, could you bury a hatchet and leave it buried? Put on these thoughts. Put on the mind of Christ. And this is the mind of Christ, that in the form, the very essence of Yahweh, he was humble. And he never compromised the essence of his divinity by being omni-humble. Think like that. I'd like to challenge you as we finish this series that I'd like to give you an invitation. I'd like our prayer guys, our prayer people, our advisors, you come up when the lights go dim at our end of our, our last song here. When the lights go down, come on down front. If you want to ask someone to pray for you or over you or with you, I'm going to give you two invitations. One, some of you might just realize for the first time that you're like thinking your good works are going to get you an audience with God now or in eternity. And maybe you've realized now after looking at this passage that you realized if Christ had to die so that I might have that, that I believe now in faith alone, in this gift alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And this could be that day where you decide to do that. Maybe you have something to lay down and let die. And it's that self-righteousness. And some of you might just need to come up and ask someone to pray for you, with you, over you, about getting released from the lies you might believe. Some of the lies you might believe might have to do with your vainglory, your pride. You're constantly bringing your rights into conversations and discussions, and you're tired of it. You've realized you've built a stronghold around this, and it's wrecking everything you touch that you value. Maybe we could help you by starting over and starting to, with, with a prayer that God's powerful spirit that indwells your soul could look at and take on this very thing. It's contrary to the way you were designed. 
Come on down during the song or after the song. Come on down for some prayer, okay? Let's, let's start believing the truth and not the lies. And let's start that today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the image of the invisible God who made all things in heaven and on earth, all things visible and invisible, all things created for you and through you, all things held together by you. And you did not consider that as something to be grasped, but took on, a, on the attitude of a servant, the very image of man. To the point of death, death even on a cross. Lord, I'd ask that that mindset of self-forgetfulness, this, this level of humility that's mind-bending and world-blowing, and just that you are that way and you have made us that way. Lord, I'd ask that you would release us from the lie that we should matter and we should hold on to our rights and that we should dig down in pride and be stubborn. These things are foreign to who you are and the way you design us. Lord, I ask that you would help us repent of those things so that we might enjoy the freedom of self-forgetfulness, so that we might serve those around us, express love for those around us, and that we might obey your Spirit's influence on our will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.